Hey, it's Brian, back for part three of this special Burr Month's bonus storytime miniseries, where Ricky Meese from the Sleigh Bells and Mistletoe Christmas podcast narrates the 1916 story When the Yule Log Burns by Leona Dalrymple. If you're listening in real time, this miniseries is being released on four consecutive days starting on Thursday, December 12th, and you really do need to listen from the beginning to follow along. And also, you really do need to subscribe to Sleigh Bells and Mistletoe for more Christmas fun for this season and beyond. The first two installments represent part one of the story as it was published in 1916. Today and tomorrow, we'll hear part two, where the story picks up again the following Christmas Eve. Did you know that the tradition is to light the year's Yule Log with the embers of the one from last year? There are lots of traditions with the Yule Log. In some places, children would ride it home like a sleigh while the grown-ups pulled it. Some decorate it with ribbons. Others sprinkle it with wine. I'll have to do an episode about that sometime soon. But back to our story, it's Christmas Eve, and we join John and his recently adopted and recently healed son, Roger, as a special surprise is just about to happen. So get cozy, get comfy, and get into the Christmas spirit as we once again go back to 1916 for an old-fashioned country Christmas at the home of John and Ellen. Here now is Ricky Meese with the third installment of As the Yule Log Burns by Leona Dalrymple. The fire again. Doctor, said little Roger slyly, you got your chin stuck out. The doctor stroked his grizzled beard in hasty apology. God bless my soul, he admitted guiltily. I do believe I have. You've been so quiet, he added accusingly, curled up there by the fire, that I must certainly have gotten lonesome. And I most always stick out my chin that way when I get lonesome. Roger, by way of reparation, betook himself to the arm of the doctor's chair. The doctor's arm closed tight around him. A year ago, this little adopted son of his had been very lame. It was the first Christmas in his life, indeed, that he had walked. Out there, said the doctor, the winter twilight's been fighting the alderberries with purple spears. It's conquered everything in the garden and covered it up with misty velvet, save the snow and the berries. But the twilight's using heavier spears now, and likely it'll win. I want the alderberries to win out, drat it. Their blaze is so bright and beautiful. Roger accepted the challenge to argument with enthusiasm. I want the twilight to win, he said. The doctor looked slightly scandalized. Oh, my, 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 he said. I can't for the life of me understand any such gloomy preference as that. Bless me if I can. Why, crowed Roger jubilantly. I can, cause the more twilighty it gets, the more it's Christmas Eve. The doctor regarded his small friend with admiration. By George, he admitted, I do believe you have me there. But the doctor's kindly eyes did not fire to the name of Christmas as Roger thought they ought. Almost, he said, I thought you were going to stick out your chin again. And you're not lonesome now, cause I'm here and pretty noisy. Hmm, said the doctor. Man to man now, urged Roger suddenly. This was the accepted key to a confessional ceremony which required much politeness and ruthless honesty. Well, Mr. Hildreth, began the doctor formally. Roger's face fell. I'm your adopted son, he hinted, and you said that made my name same as yours. 
Mr. Leslie, corrected the doctor, and Roger glowed. Well, Mr. Leslie, well, Mr. Leslie, went on the doctor thoughtfully, I'm chuck full of grievances. There's the rheumatism in my leg, for instance. That's no sort of thing to have at Christmas. But that's better, said Roger. You said so this morning. I expect you might be thinking too much about it, like you said I did when my leg was stiff. Ahem. And I did hope somebody would come home for Christmas. I like a house full of romping youngsters. Roger pointed an accusing finger. Aunt Ellen says every blessed one of your children, and your grandchildren too, begged and begged you to come to the city for Christmas, and and you wouldn't go, cause you're old-fashioned, and you like a country Christmas so much better, and... And because you'd promised to teach me to skate on the deacon's pond and to take me slaying. Dear me, said the doctor helplessly, for such a mite of a kitty, you do seem remarkably well informed. Man to man, reminded Roger, and the doctor aired his final grievance. And then there's that youngest son of mine, Dr. Ralph. Dr. Ralph. What right had he, I'd like to know, to marry that pretty sister of yours and go off honeymooning holiday time? Didn't he know that we needed him and Sister Madge here for Christmas? I miss them both, young pirate. Roger's heart swelled with loyalty. It was Dr. Ralph's skillful hand that had helped him walk. Most likely, he said fairly, I'm a little to blame there. After I came home from the hospital, I did tell Sister Madge to marry him. Most likely, acknowledged the doctor, I said something similar to Dr. Ralph. I can't have you shouldering all the responsibility. Well, Your Honor, there's the Christmas evidence. What's the verdict? Roger considered. This man-to-man game had certain phraseological conclusions. No case, he said suddenly. Nor would he alter his decision when the doctor protested against its severity. You had so awful many people sort of places to go, pointed out Roger, and the doctor laughed. "'And let you spend this first Christmas on your two legs in the city?' he demanded. "'Well, I guess not. No, sirree, Bob. There, the alderberries have faded out and the garden's thick with twilight.' "'And it's Christmas Eve,' cried Roger, his black eyes shining with delight. "'Speaking of Christmas,' said the doctor, sniffing luxuriously, I feel that I ought to slip out to the kitchen for a minute or so. I do smell something tremendously Christmassy and spicy. Roger caught his breath. With a Christmas intrigue as surely in the air as the smell of spice, here was dangerous ground. Aunt Ellen, he faltered. Aunt Ellen said she couldn't possibly be bothered with with any menfolks in the kitchen, not even me. Oh, pooh, rebelled the doctor largely. That's merely a ruse of hers to protect the cookies. And what I'd like to know is just this. What's Aunt Ellen doing in the kitchen anyway? Certainly old Annie's able to do the Christmas fussin' for three people. Aunt Ellen ought to be in here with us. That was part of my lonesome grievance, but I forgot to mention that. Roger, shivering apprehensively, visioned suspicious stores of Christmas delicacies, holly and evergreen, and a supper table set for ten. And off somewhere amongst those purple spears of twilight, old Asher, the hired man, was waiting at the station with the big farm sleigh. He must keep his eye on the doctor until six o'clock and lure him away from the window. 
Tell me a story, begged Roger, over here by the fire. And his voice was so very urgent that the hungry doctor abandoned his notion of a Christmas cookie and complied. To Roger, in a nervous ecstasy of anticipation, the story was a blurred hodgepodge of phrases and crackling fire, distant noises of clinking china and hurrying feet and wild flights of imagination. Old Asher must be coming past the red barn now, and now down the hill, and now past the deacon's pond, and now... Sleigh bells fairly leaped out of the quiet, and Roger jumped and gulped, a quiver with excitement. The doctor regarded him with mild disfavor. Bless my soul, he said in surprise. That was the quietest part of my story. You're restless. Go on, said Roger hoarsely and the obliging doctor mistakenly took his agitation for interest and went on with his tale. But Roger had heard old Asher driving along by the picket fence and turning in at the gatepost, and the story was no more to him than the noisy crackle of the log. Off somewhere in the region of the kitchen door, he detected a subdued scuffle of many feet. The grandfather's clock struck six. Roger's cheeks were blazing, the fire and the doctor still duetting. Why, oh, why didn't somebody come and call them to supper? There had been plenty of time now for everything. Why had... And then the door swung back and Roger jumped. Old Annie, Asher's wife, stood in the doorway, her wrinkled face inscrutable. Supper, sir, she said and vanished. Hand in hand, the doctor and Roger went out to supper. The dining room door was closed. That in itself was unusual. But the unsuspecting doctor pushed through with Roger at his heels, only to halt and stare dumbfounded over his spectacles while Roger screamed and danced and clapped his hands. For to the startled eyes of Dr. John Leslie, the snug, old-fashioned room was alive with boys and Holly. Boys and boys and boys upon boys. He would have told you that in the first instant of delighted consternation, in different stages of embarrassment and rags. And one had but to glance at the faces of old Asher and Annie in the kitchen doorway, at Aunt Ellen hovering near her Christmas brood with the look of all mothers in her kind brown eyes, and then at Roger, scarlet with enthusiasm, to know that the doctor had been the victim of benevolent conspiracy. It's a surprise, shrieked Roger. A Christmassy surprise. Aunt Ellen, she says you're so awful keen on surprising other folks that we'd show you. And, and you'll have a bang-up Christmas with all kids like you love so much. And so will they. And so will the minister. He went to the city and found seven boys crazy for Christmas in the country. And, and Roger, Roger, came Aunt Ellen's gentle voice. Do, please take a breath, child. You're turning purple. The doctor adjusted his glasses. Seven boys, he said. Bless my soul. When I opened that door, I saw 70 boys. He counted them aloud. Then, for no reason at all, save that he had glanced into seven eager faces, thinner and sharper than he liked, for all they glowed with excitement and furtive interest in the long supper table, a sparkle with lights and holly. He wiped his glasses and patted Roger on the back. "'Is your leg bothering you so much now, Daddy Doctor?' demanded Roger. "'Nothing like so much,' admitted the doctor. "'Are you lonesome enough now to stick out your chin?' "'Bless your heart, Roger,' admitted the doctor huskily. 
I'm so full of Christmas I can hardly breathe. Hooray, said Roger. Me too. It blazes higher. It was well that the doctor had a way with boys, for there was a problem to be solved here with infinite tact, a problem of paralyzing self-consciousness, of unnatural silences, and then unexpected attempts at speech that died in painful rasps and gurgles, of stubbing toes and nudging elbows, of a centipedal supply of arms and legs that interfered with abortive and conscience-stricken attempts at courtesy, and above all, an interest in the weave of the carpet that was at once a mania and an epidemic. But by the time supper was well underway, things in the language of Roger had begun to hum, and by the time the doctor had mastered the identities of his guest, from Jim, the shy, sullen boy who would not meet his eyes, to Mike's little brother Muggs, who consumed prodigious quantities of everything in staring silence and looked something like a girl save for a tardily cast-off suit of Mike's, somewhat oceanic in flow and fit. The hum had become celebrative and distinctly a thing of Christmas. Constraint in the mellowing halo of a Christmas Eve supper where holly and a yule log blazed and the winter wind frostily rattled the checker-paned windows of the sitting room in jealous spleen fled to join the doctor's rheumatism. By the time the grandfather's clock struck seven through a haze of holly, the doctor had pokered the yule log into a frenzied shower of gold. Apples and nuts were steadily disappearing from a basket by the doctor's chair, and the doctor himself was relating an original Christmas tale of adventure born of uncommon inspiration and excitement to a huddled group with circular eyes and contented stomachs. But Muggs, his small face, partially obscured by the biggest apple in the basket, had not yet spoken. And Jim, the shy, sullen little boy to whom Roger had taken a fancy because he was lame, had met the doctor's eyes but once, and then with a rush of color. Now, whether it was the scheming excitement of a busy day, or the warmth of a busy log, or the rambling yarn of a busy doctor, who may say? Certainly, Roger fell asleep at a fictional crisis and remained asleep despite Jim nudging him. There, said the doctor as the clock struck eight, that's all. To bath and beds, every one of you. Annie's had a lamp on the kitchen table this half hour ready to light you up the stairs. My, 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 but there's a busy day ahead, Roger. Well, of all ungrateful listeners, Roger! But in the end, the doctor carried Roger up to bed, preceded by Annie with the lamp. And while Annie was turning back quilts and smoothing pillows and fumbling at windows with the freedom of long service, she soundly berated the doctor for postponing the bedtime hour with his Christmas twaddle. And Mr. Muggs there, she said severely, he's had one too many apples, I'm thinking, and the last one as big as his head. He'll need a pill before morning. The child's packed himself that hard and round you fear to touch him. And then because Muggs was such a very little boy, Annie was minded to assist with his bath and laid kindly hands upon an indefinite outer garment which began immediately beneath his armpits and ended at his shoe tops in singular fringe. And ma'am, she explained to Aunt Ellen a little later, I had to let him go into his bath by himself. No more had I touched his bushel basket of rags, 
and they were hitched over his shoulders with school straps and somebody's shirt waist underneath. And then he let out a terrific shriek. You must have heard him. And all the other boys come running and crowding round him and staring so frightened at me. And his brother yelled at him to keep quiet. And he kept quiet that sudden I could fairly see the child swell. He's unnatural still, an unnatural fool, ma'am. And the doctor better leave the pills handy. Bathed and freshly nightgowned, the doctor's guest tumbled a little noisily into bed. Only Jim lay silent and wakeful. Once, he nudged his bedfellow. "'Luke,' he whispered, "'do you think I ought to tell him?' "'Aw,' said Luke sleepily, "'dry up, Jim. "'Gosh, ain't the bed soft?' Jim sighed. Christmas came to the old farmhouse with the distant echo of village bells at midnight. But long before that, Christmas in a fur cap and great coat had swept up the driveway with a jingle of sleigh bells. Behind old Polly, the doctor's mare, his sleigh packed high with bundles. By the light of a late moon, flinging festal silver on the snow, it might be seen that Christmas resembled a somewhat guilty-looking old gentleman with a grizzled beard. "'I'll catch old Scratch,' he admitted suddenly, overcome by the bulbous appearance of that sleigh. "'But Ellen may say what she will. She couldn't have thought of everything.' No call for pills came that night from Muggs, asleep in a crib that had seen much service. He was awake, however, long before daylight, trembling with excitement. "'Mike! Oh, Mike!' he called hoarsely. "'Wake up! It's Christmas morning!' Mike, in a big bed with Marty Fay, sat up. "'Don't you dare open your mouth today,' he cried in a bloodthirsty accent. "'Or Mom Murphy'll get you sure and scat. Ain't I schemed enough to get you here already?' Huh? Want to be sent home? Huh? Muggs ducked beneath the blankets with a shivering wail.